Uh, well, hey, everybody. Uh, it's uh, tr- Trending Twitter Tuesday. It's uh, sun- Sunday for me, Tuesday for you. And uh, as I said in the opening, um, I just saw, uh, what was the name of that movie? I just saw Rogue One, a Star Wars uh, movie. And I'll just say bravo to the casting. It just bravo. I was really, really uh, happy about that. So it's kind of dominating my uh, mental worldview this moment. Uh, but also this weekend, my daughter was in a play and uh, like a little kids' musical, Aladdin. And I was watching the play, I watched it twice this, this time. Uh, they had only two performances. And if the, uh, so if you're new here, this will just be kind of a rambling. We'll see how this goes. I, I, like, I think I'm going to take us back into the past when I was Drew and not Andy and not Scoots. Uh, ideally, we'll take a little trip to East Los Angeles, uh, East L.A. on the 60 Pomona Freeway. I don't know why it's called that, but to get there, you say, well, how did, what made you think, like, what made you want to take this trip uh, uh, down the 60, First Engage, you know, that's where I lived, uh, pretty close to First Engage, uh, in the City of Angels, uh, Los Angeles, uh, East L.A., I think it's still part of Los Angeles proper, but I'm not positive about that. Uh, but where, where was I? What was I saying? So I went to my daughter's play. Now this time, it's a it's a little community theater thing where they teach kids and the kids perform the musicals and they act and they sing. And it was Aladdin this time. And again, even though I have a daughter, I'm you might know this. I'm terrible at uh at eyeballing ages of children. Now, my daughter is nine, and I would say the kids in this play, maybe 10 or 11. Wait, is my daughter nine? Maybe I should double-check that. What year is it? 13 minus nine is good. That's a lot of math. Never mind. She, I'm pretty sure she's nine. It's 2016, right? Yeah, I think minus nine. Anyway, not important. And that's like, that's my dyslexia. That wasn't a little, that whole hilarity there. It's just my brain doesn't hold numbers in a useful way. It holds numbers, you know, like a giant sack full of numbers. And they said, well, I just need to know what, how old my daughter is numbers. And I said, hey. Uh, but the kids in the play, you know, were, were somewhere between nine and other ages within that vicinity. Probably on down to like five, I don't know, five, six years old. And they called, like they called, um, hmm, I can't remember. It was a little diminutive, diminutive, diminutive. Like I think the main cast is called The Little Performers. But then this year they had a cast of even smaller kids, which they always do, but usually they give the smaller kids, like, they're super cute, so they give them something cute to do. And I think that's, you know, that's a lot of work for the direct, the two directors because, I, I mean, I, my assumption would be that the people working on this are either doing it for free or they might as well be doing it for free because if they're getting paid money, it's not, you know, it's not enough uh, for bringing the wonder of theater to our children. 
you know, because I don't think they're getting paid like $50 an hour, which is probably what I would say would be, you know, that's a, well, that's fair, fair compensation. But, I, you know, of course, I don't run a community theater. I know, you know, so so they're doing it for something more than uh, financial gain, I guess what I'm saying. Uh, but it can be a very difficult job. And I've seen a lot of these performances. My daughter's been doing it for, for like, uh, for, for a few years, more than a few years. And uh, so they this year they tried this new thing. So they have the little performers, and I don't know what the term they used for the smaller kids. The t- I don't think they would say the tiny performers. That just doesn't sound, I don't like the way that sounds. Uh, but whatever the 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 little the, the younger performers, uh, they had them just do a show first, and it was way more structured, like uh, where the 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 main director, the you know the the, the woman that was directing the show, who was also te- you know just to teach them, you know to, like. Uh, you know, life skills and theater terms and kind of, you know, to ease their way into acting in the theater. And so she had the kids up on stage, and there was probably, let's see, two, four, six, maybe seven kids, uh, two boys and four girls or five girls. And I don't know, like, again, like I said, I'm not good at ages, maybe five, six, seven years old. I don't know, somewhere in there. Because I don't know, like, this is how my brain erased itself. Is it at four, can a kid even stand up? I don't know. Can they? When do kids start walking? And I realize I'm smiling because I can realize this is ridiculous, but I'm also serious. I mean, when can a kid feed themselves? That's like six years old, right? I think it's much younger. I, I hear you. I hear you. But so these were some cute kids. And it's always interesting, you know, to, to see children or adults, but children because, you know, they're children and they have this less of these filters and hang-ups that we as adult ha- adults have. And the younger they are, the, the even more like that they are. So to throw these kids up on stage and, and they were the center of attention, it was very structured, but they were all standing on stage and it was just really fun to watch uh, how the different kids acted. And there was a young one, one young woman that was really uh, like, uh, I mean, all the kids. It's just if you know what I'm saying, it's like uh, they either they can't believe they're on stage, or you know they don't care. So then they're like, "Oh, there's my aunt, there's my mom," you know. And it was such a good idea because, you know, the the two, the director and the assistant director were able to kind of control the kids and keep their attention. And they said they just asked some questions, but then the kids were improving hilarious, you know, answers or saying, you're just acting, you know, kind of funny stuff. You know, but I also noticed that like, uh, like one of the kids, it was like, oh, like the kids are so, uh, so without uh, hang-ups that it's like, man, a couple of these kids almost seemed like they were drunk with the spotlight. Like this one young woman, she was like uh, moving around, waving at people, cracking jokes. And I forgot, in like at this age, so I think this would probably be kind, pre-K or kindergarten age. And again, I'll try to figure out, maybe I could try to figure out what the different non-kindergarten terms are because i don't know and then i always get mixed up 
uh, but also like how kids are developing their own relationship with their body. So they have less control over their body. So kids like will just fall down, you know, or they'll just have one limb and, you know, it's not clumsy. It's like uh, it's something different. And this is what made me think about East Los Angeles uh, in in a weird way. And how much affinity I have for that. But it, and it was a time that was a long time ago now, but it just seems like it was just yesterday I was living there. And I guess it's a good time to go into it. Like, uh, yeah, so the kids the kids did a great job on the stage. But, and it was just like, uh, it's just wonderful to see, uh, like, the freedom of, 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 the, of the youth. Uh, and you know makes made for good like but hard to keep your attention kind of like this podcast it's like it has these impactful entertaining moments watching kids on really young kids on stage but at the same time you're like okay let's i mean i guess that's the cynical part of me like you can wrap this up my daughter i want to see my daughter perform here let's keep this going uh, but so East Los Angeles, I don't know how, if I've, I don't know if I've shared very much about this part of my life on this podcast. Maybe I have. So I'll probably have to do some setting up and then like maybe a short segment about, uh, like the kids and, and what, what made me think of that. Uh, but maybe there's also like broader lessons in the year about uh, like unfiltered youth and about, uh, like be what it means to be lost and finding your way. Uh, so like, like this kind of goes all the way back to like when I was graduating from university or college, depending on where in the world you live or is that second, is it also called secondary education? I don't know. But when I finished up school, I was going to school in the Bronx, uh, New York, New York, well in the Bronx of New York. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I didn't think, and again, my lifestyle uh, uh, and uh, like my inability to manage my lifestyle also probably played a subtle effect on this now that I like uh, don't party anymore. Uh, But as I finished up school, I kind of knew I had to get out of New York because I said, this is a lifestyle um, like, uh, I don't know, I just kind of worn myself down with. uh, like uh, just uh, the fact that you could go all night, you know, it's a bright lights, a big city, like and not anything glamorous. It's just uh, I just been going a little too hard. And I said, well, geez, uh, but most of my friends were staying there. And as a place I loved, uh, but like the Bronx and New York City, uh, I loved it a lot. And but I didn't know what I was going to do. And. I didn't even have, like, the confidence or the wherewithal. Like, I just, I probably would have just taken any job, which probably would have been in, like, the insurance business, because I think those were the jobs at the time that were kind of the easiest uh, to get, and who knows what ha- would happen. But so I was very lost, and I remember as we got towards the end of the year, uh, people started getting job offers or going to law- medical school or going to law school. Or just deciding, okay, I'm going to stay in New York City, so where am I going to live? Or am I going to you know, try to transition to a job and an internship? And for me, I didn't know. And I said, well, she said, I don't know if I could stay here because I don't know if I could trust myself. And, I mean, I knew I had this creative drive deep down. And 
but I had like as as like many choices in my life. Uh, keep keep it at a distance. My dreams of writing or doing something creative. Uh, I didn't have the courage or the the wisdom to in, like indulge in those. At the, even at university, like at college, like uh, while some of my friends were writing stuff and performing stuff. I don't know. I, I was in the throes of another beast, but, uh, I, but I was like, like I was, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't super afraid. I just said, geez, I don't know what I'm going to do. And luckily, because my parents have six kids and I'm the oldest, it wasn't like there was this huge burden of expectation for my parents, like weighing at me, which was a nice freedom. They didn't expect me to go to law school or to become a dad. Like they expected me to kind of find my own way and wanted just, you know, uh, that's what I think what they wanted for me. I think because they like roller coasters, they said, well, let's just set out a 30 year roller coaster ride for you two then. Uh, but so I don't know. Uh, so at the time I was like, huh, what am I going to do? And I had like the only thing that called to me was this one friend of mine was going to go work on like, uh, like, you know, you hear about this too. He was going to go to Alaska and work on, like, some sort of uh, fishing thing. I think that's now a TV show, like Ice Road Fisherman or something, right? And he was going to do that, and I guess you get a ton of money. But this guy, I mean, he was already, like, uh, he was, like, the definition in a good way. He was the nicest, one of the nicest guys at our school, best-looking guys at our school, best shape. I think he was really well off, like, too. And he was like an extrovert, like uh, every like in a nice person. Like he had everything going for him, and he was a good person. So I was like, "Well, yeah, you could go fish in Alaska, and you'll be fine." I don't think I could do that. But of all my options, and he kept he was even too like wanted to take me under. I'm like one of those people that people like to take on. You say, "Let me let me keep an eye." Don't worry, we'll go fish in Alaska together. And maybe there's like this anti-authoritarian thing with him too, of like don't you know don't uh, you know don't go into that you know don't like start wearing a suit right away kind of attitude. So I was lost, and I mean a part of me was like maybe I'll find some volunteering like I could do like at the time I think you know Peace Corps was one thing. And I think there was, there was uh, like, uh, I think uh, President Clinton had started uh, the AmeriCorps. And so, like, then there was this volunteer fair. And I went to the volunteer fair. And maybe I had already thought about doing AmeriCorps. I, I don't know. But uh, I think I did. Let, let me, I don't know. This, my memory might be out of whack. Maybe I had, like, thought about that for a while. Uh, but because Congress and the president weren't getting along, I know that the funding for that was like at the time when you know, Clinton was president. That's that's when you know I was in school. So uh, at the time that like uh, there wasn't sure those were going to be funded. But so I went to this volunteer program, and there was like other volunteer programs there. And I went to a Jesuit school, uh, Fordham University. Was up uh, Rams Rams in the, his house uh, in. Like, so there was, uh, like some, uh, there's a Jesuit volunteer organization there called the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. And I don't know if Teach for America was quite, uh, in full swing yet. I think it was, cause I think this guy, Steve did do Teach for America, America. 
And there was a couple other, like, volunteer organizations. I don't know if AmeriCorps was there. And, and I didn't want to be a teacher, but I said, well, if I could do something, you know, of you of service, I'm already lost. Like, I don't know where I'm going. Maybe that would help me. And and then, like, I talked to the pe- a couple of people at the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. And it was, this was more of a, like, a, a, a secular means it's, like, religious-based, but the Jesuit Volunteer Corps is much, it's not non-secular, uh, but it considers itself more of a social justice organization, and it's uh, it was based on these tenets of spirituality versus, like, a, a, a strict faith, uh, simple living, community, and social justice, and so I ended up at like it, it piqued my interest. I said, "Wow, that's, those are things that appeal to me." And then I met some of the volunteers, and uh, like went through the application process. And I think I was applying for AmeriCorps at the same time, but again, it wasn't sure. And the Jesuit Volunteer Corps is interesting at the time when I applied for it because you apply to a part of the country, and I lived in New York and. I said, well, there was a Southwest organization. And for me, from somebody that grew up in Syracuse, New York, uh, the Southwest, you know, of Arizona and California, I think was what they considered the Southwest. And maybe, I don't know if there was any, I think Nevada um, might have been in there. Uh, just because California is so big. But so you apply for a region. And, and, and so I decided, well... And for some reason, I like I don't remember exactly why I had I, like uh, was enamored with Arizona, uh, which thank goodness for not having any qualifications, as I'll explain in a minute. Because uh, like I, I don't think I was like I don't think I'm an Arizona person. Not nothing against Arizona, but it, I mean it was a like uh, it's, a, it's been a process. But uh, so I applied for the Southwest region, and then what you do is you go through. They have like all these jobs. And you pick 10 jobs, and that like includes where you're going to live within the jobs. And I, I guess like a lot of the jobs are either social work or working in a school, you know, that needed like a, they could use extra volunteer help. You know, you're working with uh, people in need. And so I think the first three jobs I applied for were at some school in Arizona. And I'm pretty sure the fourth job I applied for was at a school in Los Angeles in East L.A. I'm pretty sure it's fourth on my list because that's where I ended up getting placed. And so when you get into this organization, I think you still have, like, more interviews. And a lot of it's on the phone, you know, to kind of help filter you out. But let me kind of explain the program so it's based on community. So you live in community with other volunteers, which, I mean, it's kind of like roommates, but it, when you say you live in community, it means you kind of have a little bit more responsibility to one another or you're expected to kind of uh, try to do, learn what community means and build community. So there's a community part. There is simple living. So the community also means you're living in the community you're serving uh, or ideally as close to the community you're serving as you can. And then simple living means, I mean, it can mean anything, you know, that's a pretty big term. But at the time, it also meant that uh, as part of your placement, you got like a place to live and, you know, the utilities paid for, or we paid for the utilities. Uh, But we got money for utilities, the rent was paid, and then 
you got $75 a month for food uh, and then $75 a month for for spending money for, for personal stipends, which even now I can't believe. I guess you have to live in community at that point, or what, that's what my community decided. It's like, okay, well, we'll pool all our food money. Uh, and I mean, this was like a, a little while ago. So seventy. I think at some point they raised it to 150 and we never were hungry. I mean, you definitely have to, you, you're less indulgent, less sweets and less, you know, even fast food was out for the most part. Uh, so those are the two, then social justice kind of means, I guess not, like back then that was a good thing. Now people kind of use that word derogatory in a derogatory manner. Some people do, but at the time, it just meant like looking at the prevailing structures of our society and culture and trying to, you know, enact change. I don't know, like, uh, you know, trying to be of service to other people and see what structural things are not in service equally, maybe. And I think all the organization wanted you to do was become more aware of like how the real world works for a lot of people. And uh, let me go. Let me talk a little bit more about this social justice thing before we get into spirituality, because I think that really works. Like living, like I can tell you, there's a bunch of reasons this profoundly changed my life. This is a year long experience, a year long commitment too, by the way. Uh, that kind of starts in August and ends in August. But uh, like the social justice and the community aspect. Like, living in the Bronx had already kind of changed and opened up my worldview because I grew up in Syracuse, New York. And, like, I think I was kind of a closed-minded person. Like, I I lived in my little uh, Irish Catholic bubble. Uh, But I thought I knew how the world worked, and I really was probably just a closed-minded person. And then getting to the Bronx and kind of seeing, like, a a much more wide-open and diverse way of living— and seeing how people are impacted by it, it just, it just changed how I view the world. But then, like, uh, uh, this experience even opened me up more. And a lot of times I think, like, uh, like this isn't about me. It's just, like, what I've learned is that, uh, you know, it's really hard to imagine yourself in other people's shoes. Uh, but when you're spending time with people uh, that are going through an experience— like you get, a, it does change you and it, it, it doesn't just humanize it. Like it, it lets you see, uh, their experience or experience their experience in an indirect way or a direct way, maybe. And it just profoundly changed how, how I view the world, I guess, uh, in, in a slow, subtle way. And then the spirituality aspect, I think this program was kind of open to like, geez, what does that mean to you? Like there is this Catholic Jesuit influence to that. And the whole program was kind of structured around these Ignatian principles from St. Ignatius. Uh, But a lot of that is about uh, uh, discerning things and and stuff like that. And I I don't want to over-explain it or mis-explain it. Uh, But so those were the kind of tenets of the program. It was a year-long program. And it started, uh, let's see, what what do I want to fixate on? Like, I, I guess for me, like, I didn't think I would get in. And then when I got in, uh, I, w- I think I was excited. Like, I was like, holy cow, I'm going to move. Oh, so I got placed at the, in East Los Angeles. That was my fourth choice. And boy, was I lucky. It really changed my life. Um, 
and uh, it was living with uh, one other man and uh, three women. And so then at some point, and I think you're like, uh, like you, pretty sure you just buy your own way out there. And so I flew to San Jose, California, which now I live in there. And we went for like a retreat and like a conference uh, in Abitos, uh, I think, California, uh, on the coast. And so I flew in like the day before that and I stayed at, I think, a Holiday Inn. And it was the first time I had been in California. It was the first time I had been west of the Rockies. Probably only like my third or fourth time on a plane in my whole life. Actually, it might have been my third time on a plane in my life, I think. Or not one, two, oh, fifth time maybe? I don't know. But, yeah, I remember flying in and, like, seeing, like, it was the summer, so all the hills in San Jose were dry and brown, and I didn't know if I was in the desert, and it was hot. And, I again, like, I'm, I was like, uh, this was an interesting year for me as an introvert because I was feeling very introverted, but I was also feeling like I had this fresh start, like, uh, so maybe I would leave some of my hang-ups and my problems behind me and uh, try to be friendly and make friends with as many people as I could. And I think when I first got there, that was really hard. You know, like, uh, I was afraid. I think there was, like, one other person there that I kind of knew. Uh, but other than that, and then I, like, met my roommates. My roommate, the man, man Bob, we were going to share a room. And he seemed really cool. And then the other women were Natalie, Ann, and Patty. And they all seemed great. And then there was other volunteer houses in the Los Angeles area, one in Santa Monica, one in downtown L.A. And there was one in San, uh, uh, there was one in San Jose, a couple in San Francisco, a couple in Oakland, San Diego, Bakersfield, or Fresno. Fresno. Um, but so... My my roommates and we started getting no program and then uh, I don't know how we got now that I think about it I don't, I don't know how we got to uh, L A from there maybe we rented a car we must have rented a car for one way I think we must have like because uh, I don't remember I remember driving down and that's like the best time to get to know people you know so we were like we drove from Apatos, uh, I think, back inland, and then took the five down to L.A. And, uh, drove, like, uh, so all of us were new. None of us, I think, maybe one or two people had visited L.A. before. And we drove to the the house we're staying, which was a back house and behind, behind a woman uh, woman's house. And she lived in the front house with her aunt, and her husband had just passed away not that long before, so she was kind of still, like, going through through that. And, like, uh, there was a car there. Not every volunteer group had a car, but we had, like, 19, like, 70s uh, blue, like, uh, ho- you know, hoopty car, like a, like a barely running can't remember. I'll think, maybe I'll think of the type of car. It was some kind of Chevy, I think. And so behind her house in the back, there was like a little, uh, nice little small house. And it had a living room uh, where, and then a bedroom where me and Bob shared. And then I think it had two other bedrooms and then kind of a small back room. And three women se- separated those. 
And it was kind of like an unofficial, like, lease, I think, because the landlord had a lot of rules. Uh, but it was her house, you know, it was like, uh, it was a little bit different. Um, it was much more community, like a, like an older school community, you know. Uh, but the one thing, that, the most interesting thing, I think, about the rules in the house was that there was no shower. There was no shower. And the bathroom was stucco. And for whatever reason, I think maybe just because of the stucco or like that the tub was there, one of the rules was you couldn't take a shower. Like you bathed like with a pitcher and you just dump the pitcher over your head and you sit in the tub and wash yourself that way. And I guess it just took some getting used to. And then uh, once you got used to it, uh, I think I actually started occasionally taking like a full on bath. And there was only one bathroom, which I was looking, I was thinking back on it the other day. And I'd like kick on some incense and, and uh, you know, maybe listen to some music or reading a magazine. I mean, maybe because I was a school teacher, I got home before everybody else, but I'd be locked in there, you know, kick back, kicked back. Uh, and oh, one other thing was that we couldn't hang anything on the walls except for like one rectangle of uh poster board. And it, it ended up that the landlord and I had a falling out, uh, but, but not that important, important right now for this part of the story, but because of all these rules, you know, I'm not a, like I'm a person that, uh, you know, but, but it was, at the time it was just like, uh, cool. Like, and taking a shower tub, well, I guess it was like not a shower tubby, but, uh, uh, it was fun with the picture and stuff. And then, so then we all got there and all of us it, like, uh, got our jobs now and who stayed in LA, she still lives in LA and, uh, Sometimes you might see me post about when she has a play and she does stuff at the Groundlings Theater. Now, she was a social worker, so she, like, literally, I think, had to start her job. Like, if we got in on a Sunday or Saturday, she was starting her job that Monday. And she was working at, like, like an agency on Skid Row, and it was a very intense job, especially for somebody right out of college, like, uh, to go right into direct service like that. And then the rest of us kind of got off a little bit easier. Like the other four of us had jobs at uh, schools and, you know, kids are stretch you in a different way than adults do. Uh, so like, uh, let's see. So Bob had a school in East Los Angeles and Patty was working at a school that was on the other side of East L.A. I'm not sure if it stayed in East L.A. or if it was in, it was the opposite way of Boyle Heights. And I don't know my directions anymore. Um, so I don't know if it's still in East L.A. or what part of Los Angeles. It was still, it was like a, a couple bus rides or she would drive. Uh, Bob would walk, ride a bike to school and then uh, Natalie and I, we would walk to school. We both worked at Our Lady of Guadalupe School in East Los Angeles. And my job there, I had a couple different jobs. No experience, but I had a couple different jobs. I was a second grade teacher's aide with uh, Miss Tehran. I don't know. Uh, it's been a while since I've spoken to her, but such a wonderful person. And uh, Mrs. 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 Lopez was the principal. She was awesome uh, principal. She brought a lot of... Uh, she just seemed like she had a lot of activities and a lot of stuff going for the kids. 
Uh, but so a, a second grade teacher's aide and the PE teacher for, for the boys' PE teacher. And it was a school K through 8. Uh, and so this is when stuff uh, starts to get interesting. Because uh, the second grade teacher's aide, you are right, because you're uh, – you're kind of working like uh, with like the teach under the teacher and Miss Tehran. She was a very professional teacher, and so she you know she knew what she was doing. Uh, and then Bob, my roommate, he was also teaching PE. But so uh, I was teaching PE to like first day, and they were like, "Okay, here's the PE closet, you know, where all the balls are, and here's this book about PE." Uh, you know, your first class starts in, in, in this long. And I remember the school year, I think we had a couple of days or maybe even a week or two before school started. So I don't think I said, well, I said, well, maybe I'll do some reading about uh, like uh, what, what to do or whatever. But I never did. And that's what like this will be wraps around. I think the, the girls, the PE teacher was a parent. And uh, so I learned so many lessons by te- I got to tell you, like learning, like teaching voice PE, I, I wish I would have written down the lessons I learned on a daily basis. Uh, but what what this play reminded me of this weekend was like one of the the best things I learned pretty quickly was like the middle grades uh, were the easiest, uh, like because the kids. Uh, they were they they're mostly like so sixth grade was on the border seventh and eighth grade were really hard and kindergarten if i don't know if they had pre-k but kindergarten first and first, kindergarten first were hard but second third fourth fifth were easy for the most part because the kids they had control over their bodies for the most part uh they were enthusiastic to play and um, like they weren't super competitive, like, so they weren't like, I mean, there were, there's always competitive kids and there's always kids that want to be the best and stuff. Uh, but for the most part, like they weren't super competitive or mean or anything, but right around seventh grade, like seventh and eighth grade were really hard to the boys, especially at first. Cause I mean, I don't have any classroom management skills and I didn't really know that, you know, or I guess I didn't realize that, you know, there's going to be bullying and there's going to be super competitiveness and your kind of job with the older kids and the youngest kids was to make sure nobody got hurt. It wasn't so much like to control the chaos, I guess, so these two different types of chaos. And I don't know how I settled it because this was like football season and the kids wanted to play football. Uh... And then they want to play basketball and, and, and softball or whatever. So I don't know how I may. I mean, I remember like learning very quickly, like, oh, boy, because this is like they're playing flag football or two hand touch or whatever. But like right on the like right on the, the blacktop, you know. So with the older kids, it was kind of aggravating in this way where I felt like I had to kind of dominate, you know, dominate and watch out and discipline and be like, you know, don't push that kid or don't throw, you know, like, uh, it was, it could be tiring. Uh, it didn't really offer positive puzzles, like, like, cause it was just kind of like these, uh, it's just, you know, like males on the cusp of their bodies changing and then they, uh, 
and then try for me to try, you know, just power struggles. And we would have some good times, but, uh, but then the younger kids, I remember this was so hard to learn because I didn't know anything about PE. It was like when you're in kindergarten and in first grade, or maybe it's kindergarten and pre-K, uh, but the kindergarten and first grade, we'll just say as the example, these kids can barely stand up, uh, like in a group. I mean, I'm sure your kid at home, they're doing, you know, I'm sure they're doing like a whole comedy routines and gymnastics and stuff. Uh, but when you're responsible for like 20, 30 of these kids and you get them out on some asphalt and, uh, you realize how, uh, like, uh, like how, like hard it is to manage because these kids, they'll just be falling down or bump it, you know, you can't do anything that involves a group because they'll just fall over each other and run into each other and in those kind of things. And I think I probably learned the hard way because probably the first thing I went to was, uh, um, what do you call that, kickball, like for the younger kids because I said I remember playing kickball and liking it because most people could kick a kickball. Uh, well, not, you know, for, you, that, I think that's how I learned, like kindergartners really can't kick a kickball. Even if it's, I think I even tried like t-ball, kickball. And there was also a time I tried like super size. I think this is popular now, but at the time we had like a giant kickball. Like, and, and we did play that and it would just knock the kids over. That was like a scene of, like that could have been a montage because I think it, maybe the kids asked because maybe we played with like fourth, fifth or sixth grade. And the kids, you know, it would be funny because the ball is huge. Uh, but it became, it was like a couple of kids get, you know, the ball was bigger than the kids and they'd go to kick it and they'd get bumped. So, so that ended that thing. And, and so there I discovered, and I, I guess this is like, uh, this is where the lessons are in the podcast down deep, uh, where, where the lessons are meant to be mined is if you ever find yourself in a position where you have to become a PE teacher of children age, whatever age you're in when you're in kindergarten. Well, I don't know what pre-K is, I guess. Like, that's the other thing. Now they have transitional kindergarten, there's preschool, and there's pre-K. And I don't know what any of that means. I don't, even as a parent. Um, so, whatever. I think they had, probably maybe they had pre-K, kindergarten, and first grade, where the kids were, like, really tiny, really cute. And you don't want them to get hurt. So you say, okay, kickball's out. First uh, first or second week, I learned that. And then I said, oh, boy, so softball, you guys can't play softball. Maybe even tried, like, wiffle ball or even t-ball. And if, also, the other thing is you got to keep these kids. Now, this is where I, I learned I quickly excelled is, like, holding their attention. Obviously, I could do the sleep podcast. I can keep brain bots entertained. And I, I'm not trying to be demeaning, but I think my humor and my sensibilities, are, that's the like age range that they say, well, if you were going to do a comedy tour, Scoots, where would you do it? I say, well, yeah, like a, a kindergarten, I could hold a kindergartner's attention for four or five minutes. So uh, that's where I'd like to tour. And that's why then, you know, but I think like I, I'm good at holding kids' attention in that kind of context. So here's where we get into the, the the meat. Like, if you have a notebook, uh, you don't need it. Because here's what you got to remember. Uh, hula hoops in relay racing. Hula hoops in relay racing. That's all you got to remember. 
because uh, at some point I d- discovered by accident, by, you know, like uh, desperation, like tr- going through this closet, jump ropes. I think even for that age, jump ropes are dangerous for boys because I wasn't uh, teaching the girls. They did do double dutch and stuff like that. Uh, but again, I think that's probably like the fourth, third, fourth, fifth graders. Um, but at some point I stumbled upon for these little kids that relay racing and it changed everything, except that at some point the kids got sick of it. So then I had to keep inventing new relay races. And you like, here's the, here's the, the tenets of a good relay race, hula hoops. And you say, and I don't know why we had a closet full of hula hoops. Uh, but we did. We were, I was lucky enough to have a PE closet full of hula hoops. Um, but so, oh, what are the tenets of good relay races? You got to have high energy. So you, the kids have to think there's a high stakes. So you always want one or two things that at least you could explain to the kids. Uh, these are extreme. This is extremely dangerous. And I think cones are good for that. Uh, also, cones they add a lot more. It pizzazz uh, to a real good relay races. Uh, you got to have a turnabout. Oh, high fives. That's another key. Like, because uh, uh, you do have to have some, comp- it is better if it's competitive. Now, maybe with the pre-K and the kindergartners, you can get away with like just cheering or pretend timing. You could do like a timer will help a stopwatch, but you don't really need it. You just say, yeah, there's 46 seconds. Second, you know, that's fast. Oh, boy. Was it faster than other kid? Well, oh, I hit reset. What did I say? 46 seconds? I'm not sure. Uh, but so you, you, here's what you, here's the like, best case scenario is you break the kids up into two groups. So let's say we had uh, 16 boys. You get two teams of eight. Uh, you really don't want more than eight, te- you know, you more like even eight. You don't want more than three, two teams, because that's a lot to, because you got to focus. And then you, these are some of the secret keys that the kids don't know about. You keep the kids lined up and spaced out because, again, they don't have control over the body. So some, you know, they could just fall over at any minute. I mean, the, the pediatricians won't tell you this, but it's true. And it's perfectly normal. From my observations, it's perfectly normal. You know, there's a little pebble. Your kid falls over on it. Um, and they don't get hurt. They're very durable, these children. Uh, but you want to reduce, you know, you get the variables down. So you get them in lined up, and then you get them, you got to get them focused. So it's another trick. You know, you make up something, you know, say you have some secret, you know, what's the best path? You know, you you, you know, you got to perform for the kids. And then you could decide, I like to have a turnabout. Like, I don't like the kids waiting in another area because you don't want more than one kid out on the racetrack or you get them to go to one end and go turn around and go back. And so there's your basic, that's your basic two lines of kids, turnabouts. And when they come back, they always slap a high five, a gentle, nice high five to the next kid so the next kid knows to go. And you actually, if you can get them to just line up again, even if they're not going to go again, that's usually best, uh, you know, because you'll know, like, when, when they're done is when the bell rings. You know, you see, just if you can keep running this race till the bell rings, that's job done. And I guess the, everything in between is the art that is the PE teacher. So 
you know, I like I like to have a, like a cone that, you know, either they have to go around. You want something goofy that's going to get the kids laughing. And that's more, you know, maybe you want to get, spread some joy. Maybe that's your job. Maybe that's your calling. But also it keeps them engaged. You want these little things to keep them engaged. And I, th- I always think ridiculous tasks. Uh, and you wouldn't, I, again, I cannot tell you about these hula hoops. So that's what we'll finish up on tonight is amazing things you can do with hula hoops. Uh, like, first of all, what you could do is, uh, you know, they can, they, there's a hula hoop racing where they have to keep the hula hoop rolling and they're just kind of uh, doing it or they have to spin it on one of their arms while they're running the race. So there's body-based hula hooping. I, won't, I don't make kids do the hula hoop on their waist because I can't do that, so I can't even show an example of that. Uh, you can also have hula hoop jumping. And the, these would be maybe your first couple of weeks, but then the kids start to catch on. Uh, I think the hula hoop rolling's always been good. Then you can have hula hoop rolling for a distance, or you could have hula hoop rolling... And then you have to, you know, like depending on where your hula hoop stopped, like once it falls down, you can run. But if it falls, you know, you can do different. But but the best thing is like if you hold your hula hoop and you flick it with your wrist, you know, when you do that hula hoop flick and then it shoots out, but then it has the backwards English and then it comes back. Like if you're like once you're a PE teacher, you're a professional. So you should be able to do that with both hands at the same time, for one for each lane, and also be able to do it without English. So it just rolls, and then then the kids can they'll have to run and fetch the thing, or you know if you're just rolling it, they could have, they can have to run through it uh, once. Though you know the younger kids, you got to be careful with that because they're going to wipe out. But usually the idea of running and, I mean, that'd be good for like, this could get us through December. You know, if we started in August, we could be just winter break by now of chasing it. And then you can do hula hoop tossing. Uh, But the hula hoop throwing, like, and then having them run it down, like, honestly, I don't think I stopped. I think I stopped running relay races that didn't have uh, swiftly moving hula hoops. And I think because it like plus allows hula hoops have the beads in there, so there's a noise. And then it's like the kids are also like wondering, is the teacher going to mess it up? So there's that. And then it's just so it has like enough chaos and danger. It's not really chaotic or dangerous. So it's just a hula hoop. I thought that I guess leading up to it, I thought there'd be more exciting stuff about the hoop, but it's mostly me just flicking it with my wrist with English so that they would spin back. I guess once you, t- if you can teach the older kids that, then they could, see, you could see yeah, the distance one. Um, yeah, I guess it's not. I guess that's why it's a sleep podcast. But yeah, so that's like, and you could, sit, you can do this for parties and stuff. You know, make sure you know, and then oh, mother may I? That was another big one. Uh, I mean, if you're desperate, like especially with kindergartners and first grade, maybe not first graders, but. Uh, and, st- and make that into a, um, like, you just get, you can start adding themes, but you got to do themes the kids would understand. So then you make them, you know, they could be superheroes doing a hula hoop based uh, relay race. But I got to tell you, like, I, I think the kids probably had a grudge against me because then I would rarely, 
you know, do anything. Because once you get them lined up, you're like, wow, nobody's falling down. They're all on a line. I can see them all. You know, you can mind a behavior. You can do that. So, well, I know we're ready to race when everybody's looking forward and standing two feet on the ground. And see, why hasn't the race started? Oh, well, you know, this was my joke. I think I've shared it on there. I'd say, well, this isn't shakies. Uh, only little kids in Los Angeles would get that. They, like, even the kids didn't get it at first to, like, explain to them. So what do you mean this isn't shakies? They said, well, you could stand however you want when you're at shakies. But, uh, you know, we're getting ready to run a superhero-based uh, uh, relay race. So I need two feet. On- oh, okay. That's not, it's not shakies. You're right. So hula hoops, wines, uh, cones aren't necessary. Uh, you, you know, just goofy stuff, and that's that's how you manage a PE. But yeah, like I guess it wraps back around. It's like like almost like the kids are a little bit drunk. Is how it is. Like you're like, uh, did you just fall down? Yeah, I did. I just felt that's the kids that say, I just fell right down. I just fell right down. They say, all right, let's get you up, and then, uh, uh, I mean, at first I think I was more worried about them getting broken, you know. And I said, well, I got to keep this. I got to. I got to prevent this, and the way I do that is uh, to obsess about it. And out of my obsession, I grew a new obsession with relay races. And the, you know, I guess that just touched on a little bit of my time in East LA, but a place I loved so much. I think again, I was trying. You know, I ran away from LA just like I ran away from New York because I was afraid. Uh. But, you know, it all worked out in the end. And relay races, they don't always work. You know, you, if, you, you, you know if you're doing them for fun, I, I mean, that, that's another nice thing about relay races. You, you know, it can be like the kids, even if you say there's no winner, the kids know who won, at least in their own individual race. So it still feeds their desire for competition. And you could have winners if you want. You know, it just it depends on the lessons. But trust me, like, uh, less lessons, you know, we're there. For, it's playtime, you know, structured play. I think that's what they actually call it. So, yeah, there's some free stuff. Four square, the problem with that, I heard you. I heard I did hear you. I would play that sometimes with the kids. But, uh, I mean, just on at rec time, recess, because uh, four square, you got too many kids and if you can't monitor them, it's not going to work. So, all right, that's it. Thanks, everybody, and uh, good night.